Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can head to our website at RenewalChicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. our annual conversation on the gospel and race and I just want to give you a little bit of vision of why we do this every year uh, I didn't put the uh, scriptures on the screen but if you got a Bible you can meet me in Ephesians 4 I'm just going to read two verses today um, and this is one that I commonly think about when we come to this conversation on the gospel and race and this is why we do it it says in Ephesians 4 11 through 12 this is Paul saying this he says and he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Everybody say equip. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Key word in there is equip. This key word is equip. And the reason I, I say that is because as Paul is laying this out and he's telling the church, I, when I read this, it always convicts me too, because as a pastor, my job is not to do the work of the ministry, if that makes sense is to equip you all, the body of Christ, to be able to do the work of the ministry. And so when we come on here on Sunday, it's you hear a sermon, you hear worship, but it is for us to be able to equip to walk outside these doors. And I say that because I think there's an issue within the church today where we haven't really been equipping folks. We come to church on Sunday and, and we have a great experience, we have a good worship experience, we gather together, but the problem is if we're not really being equipped with the gospel, if we're not doing life with each other outside of this, what happens is we walk outside these doors and we fall. We come up against things that are tough in society or even topics like today and we don't know how to navigate those topics. And so it's tough for us because we haven't thoroughly been equipped. And so when I come to these conversations and when we started this, I said I wanted to create a space five years ago when we started where we can equip the body we could talk about topics within society that, that are plaguing us or that have been there, and particularly with matters of race, because race, depending on your race and your background, has, has typically dictated in the way, the way you, you, you address certain things in society. So in the beginning of our church, we just had a conversation, myself and Pastor Ricky, uh, about our backgrounds and where we come from and how we're different. And what I wanted to do, there's two things that I want to help you with this and why we do this is, number one, I believe lives are changed on Sunday morning, but they're also changed in dreams. Jesus meets people there too. But one of the main ways that lives are changed is when you sit down at a dinner table or you invite somebody in your home. Those are those intimate spaces where we don't like to let other people in unless they have common interests or they have common things in their lives that we can meet and where we can hang out and we can have fun together. But when we see Jesus in the Bible, we see Jesus crossing lines with people that were different than him, that were not really like him. They had sin and he crossed those lines and he allowed them into intimate spaces and he shared meals with them. And so what I want to do today and what we've done every year is have this, so to say, dinner table conversation where we sit down and we talk about something that's tough with, 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 uh, with many different people or different people from different backgrounds. We're going we're gonna to share some intimate things because I, wanna, I want you to see this. I don't want to just teach and tell you to say, what should dinner tables look like? How do, how do you change this thing in your house? How are you being intentional living out the gospel in your life? I want to show you. 
I want you to be able to see this. So we're going to do that today. We're going to have a conversation on the gospel race and particularly with matters of politics and how we navigate um, the political arena. I mean, I think we have a presidential election this year, right? Is that is something coming up, right? Something, something's happening this year. So uh, it's a pertinent conversation that we're going to have. Um, but before we get to that conversation, I'm going to bring my friend Justin Gibney up. He's going to, to speak. And I, I really... I can't say enough. I love every time I hear my brother speak. He is totally a gift to the body of Christ, not just a gift to our church this morning, but I believe a gift to the body of Christ and, and the passion that God has given them, the desire to see Christians be able to navigate the political and civic arena. And so he's founded the Ann Campaign, um, and today he's going to speak specifically on how race has really even has really dictated how we enter the political arena and he's going to speak to both sides so this isn't about one side he's going to talk about that and so if you don't know much about the ant campaign i implore you to go online christians we need to be we need to be engaged in what's happening outside these four walls that's politics that's social justice on down the line like that's what jesus did so i'm not telling you something that's outside of the gospel jesus chose to cross lines and if he didn't none of us would be here and so th that's what we see and that's where the Ann campaign really stands on that so it's a biblical message so everything you'll hear from him is from the bible as we stand on that i'm part of the Ann campaign chapter here in chicago and i'm delighted to be on that so would you just for a moment with me just put your hands together as he comes to the stage and speak to us the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of God shall stand forever. Uh, I am happy to be here this morning. First and foremost, I want to thank uh, Pastor Puckett, uh, number one, for his, his friendship, uh, for his leadership, uh, seeing that he's resigned himself not to just do things within the four corners of the church, the four walls of the church, but taking it outside the four walls of the church. And uh, the Ann campaign has never asked uh, something of him that he didn't humbly accept. And so we greatly appreciate uh, Pastor Puckett and all that he does. Thank you so much. And also uh, for entrusting me uh, with the job of talking about a subject that's a delicate subject, uh, that can be a dangerous subject if not talked about properly. And so I appreciate that he entrusted me with that uh, opportunity today. If you would, uh, the scripture today comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses uh, 15 through 18. That's 1 John chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. If you don't uh, mind, please stand for the reading of the scripture, if you don't mind. And it reads, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You may be seated. My late mentor, uh, Lonnie King Jr., who founded the Atlanta, Atlanta Student Movement in 1960, who masterminded the protest of Rich's department store, told me that when marching and picketing and 
sit-ins failed to compel white churches to help fight the menace of Jim Crow, they resorted to what he called pray-ins. Yes, they bravely traveled up to the white side of town and literally went into white churches and humbly kneeled at the altar during service to pique the Christian conscience, to see if a change in atmosphere would produce a different result. Perhaps the duplicity between these churches' political positions and their stated commitment to the gospel would be undeniable and irreconcilable if the sacred and the civic were presented in unison. Would the uh, sermon, uh, prayer, doxology, or hymnals inspire the parishioners into action? Would it trigger some type of compassion reflex? soften their hearts or stimulate a eureka moment of empathy? If the issue of racial injustice was brought to them in their place of worship, would they finally see brothers and sisters in Christ rather than inferiors and subordinates? You see, this was less of a political statement than a statement of common faith, common humanity and common worship a reminder that the ultimate common good is the Imago Dei. But it certainly had political implications. It was a plea to be recognized as human and in need of justice. A plea to a community who had the problem and the solutions located in their sphere of influence. You see, these white churches had the political and cultural capacity to end this wicked, this wicked institution almost Immediately. And so Lonnie King and other civil rights workers went to the source and they spelled out their burdens, asking these believers with more financial and social capital to stay true to the Christian love imperative. And the response, as you probably could have guessed, was pathetic. Silence. Averted eyes. Expressions of exasperation and contempt. How dare these black students come into our church and ask for mercy so near the mercy seat? How dare they seek justice so near a throne composed of justice and righteousness? How dare they interrupt our ceremonies in such a state of desperation, pleading the cause of human dignity as black bodies were still swinging in the southern breeze? strange fruit hanging from poplar trees. Around the same time, Medgar Evers was shot in the back of the head with a high-powered rifle for having the audacity to fight for the right to vote, and yet these pray-ins were dismissed by some Christians for their lack of decorum. Today, I want to discuss race politics in the church, past failures, present blind spots, and a hopeful and aspirational path to future conciliation. Let's get back to the text. First John is an epistle that was written by the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, who was also called the disciple of love. And I really enjoy reading First John because it fleshes out the concept of love. I mean, we all know the greatest commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our minds and to love our neighbors as ourselves. But first John helps iron out or detail exactly what that means in practice. And that's important because love can be a very nebulous concept. 
Love can be ambiguous. It can be lacking in form. And it's often used arbitrarily really to mean whatever we want it to mean, to fit our narratives. Certainly the world's conceptions of love are very different from how John uses the term here. Many of you have heard the old song, I love you with the love of the Lord, which involves a very important distinction between any old kind of love and the love of a just and righteous God. John articulates what the Bible means by the term love. The definition delineated here contrasts with love as characterized by both ideological conservatives and progressives in society today. Love, according to John, is not sentimentality. It's not uncritical affirmation. It's not the condescending and dismissive bless your heart quip. And it's certainly not the various methods of deflection we often encounter from majority Christians when talking about race. John presents Jesus's life, work and death as the perfect embodiment of love. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. He was holy, he did justice, he sacrificed. You see, John's not gonna let us get away with tailoring love to fit our own appetites or selfish cultural and political interests. No, no, John is telling us that God's love is infinite, but that it also has definition, a definite objective and a definite course of conduct. In fact, over 2,000 years ago, love had a body and a body of work that it's incumbent upon us to study and imitate. Based on, John's, based on Jesus' example, John says that we must love not with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. In other words, we must love with our deeds, with our labor, and we must do so sincerely. Now, it's important to note that John right here is not generally downplaying the value of words. Words are important. But in the context of a brother or sister in need and you having the capacity to help, Actions and deeds are more appropriate in that circumstance. Actions and sacrifice would demonstrate a sincerity that words would lack in that situation. In that context, love is not merely kind sayings and hallmark cards. It's not a product of our ever-changing and unreliable opinions. According to John, love is manifest through actions and it's ordered by obedience to, to, to God's truth. So if the conservative evangelical came up to John and said, am I, am I loving my African-American sister by telling her not to worry about all this race stuff? It'll work itself out. Let's just focus on the spiritual. Based on what John says in, in uh, uh, 1 John 3, I think John would say no. Love involves work and sacrifice. If there's something that you can change, whether it be a policy or a system, you must do that, and that would be love. But we don't just talk about one side, we talk about both. If the progressive goes up to John and asks, am I loving my friend who's struggling with the flesh by affirming their actions and telling them that if it feels right, then it is right, is that love? And based on 1 John 3, John would have to say no. Love is only present in obedience to God. It's not an uncritical affirmation. You, child of God, must promote holiness. Again, the Christian love ethic often calls for action, labor, and self-sacrifice. 
I'd submit that that applies not just to our personal relationships, but also to our public witness, to how we consider and care for others through our advocacy and our votes. The gospel must impact every aspect of our lives, including our social action. The gospel should be palpable in our political engagement. And if we fail to use our civic power to protect the human dignity of our neighbors, then we're simply poor stewards, unfit to manage the power God entrusted to us. When God places the plight of others in our sphere of influence and we fail to act compassionately and deliberately, how can the love of God be in us? We're just like the person in 1 John 3 with material possessions who does nothing for those in need. Politic provides us with a robust opportunity to pursue the great commandment. We shouldn't engage politics for politics sake or primarily for the sake of power, but rather to promote the compassion and conviction of the gospel. To love your neighbor in the civic space is to seek their well-being through civic action. In America, race and politics has always been intertwined because our laws explicitly codified racial injustice. Consequently, Christian political engagement cannot be colorblind. Exhibit A, the Virginia Slave Codes of 1705 codified slavery as a legitimate institution. Let me give you a more recent example. Jim Crow didn't end until the mid to late 1960s, which means a legal system of explicit bias was in action when Generation X was coming to be. Redlining, which denied financial services and houses to black people, uh, wasn't addressed in earnest until 1975. And still today, our criminal system locks up black and brown men disproportionately. Go back again, Executive Order 9066 ordered the encampment of our Japanese brothers and sisters. This was orchestrated by politics. General Order 25, which was connected to the Indian Removal Act of 1830, led to the Trail of Tears and the displacement of, 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 of many Native American brothers and sisters. This was initiated as well by political devices. We cannot untie politics from race in America. We've been commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we can't do that if we're not willing to advocate for our neighbor's well-being in society. That's all a biblical definition of social justice is. According to the great commandment, if you want or would seek justice for yourself, then you must want and seek it for others. If we truly love our neighbors, we'll be socially concerned. And that social concern will not be just a sentiment. That social concern will be active and it will involve self-sacrifice. You see, we supposedly have Christians who are against social justice. But let me tell you a secret. I don't believe them. I think that everyone is for social justice. Some of us just limit it to the people that we care about and deny it to others because it would inconvenience us. Let me give you an example. No one is going, no one in here today is going to sit around and watch someone they love be unjustly imprisoned. No one in here today is going to allow their children, the children in their neighborhood, to drink lead poisoned water if there was something that they could do to prevent it. And why is that? Because everyone in here believes in social justice. They believe that a certain, that they believe that there's a certain standard by which everyone should be treated with human dignity based on the Imago Dei. 
But we have to realize that justice is much harder than charity. There's a reason that people will give you charity long before they give you justice. You see, charity is good, but charity can be distant. And charity allows the giver to control how much it will impact them. Justice, on the other hand, is either given fully or not given at all. It's a God standard. Justice justice threatens to disrupt the very systems and societal arrangements that benefit us. At some point, justice demands a conflict with self-interest. It dismantles the very podiums and platforms upon which we stand and look down on others. This is what is at the heart of the resistance to racial justice. And it's a heart without the love of God in it. Hardened hearts is why Lonnie King and other civil rights activists could go into churches and still not get Christians to fight against injustice. That said, when it comes to race and politics, God is demanding something of all of us. Those who have resources, power, and a history of advantage bear a greater share of the burden. But no one is exempt from loving their neighbor, self-examination, or seeking reconciliation. The gospel tells us to love our enemies. John's gospel explains that loving God involves obeying his commands. That principle is reflected in 1 John 3, and no one is excluded from that requirement. Follow me closely now because I'm entering into nuanced territory in a society that's averse to the nuance that truth demands. Some who advocate for racial justice are hesitant to discuss the onus that is also placed on the oppressed, and I understand their apprehension. Because when some majority Christians hear anything about shared responsibility, that means that they can cop out, blame the other race, blame the other culture, or blame the black family in particular, and summarily excuse themselves from the conversation. That's a self-righteous and downright sinful response. Because of American history and the present power and resource disparities, the burden is not equivalent but the standard for promoting unity, love, and truth is the same. While my primary emphasis today is on the importance of majority Christians using their advantages and political power to fight injustice, I'd be remiss if I didn't address the serious flaws in some progressive theologies and ideologies that seem to suggest that those who are categorized as the oppressed aren't required to uphold the same love and obedience imperative. The subtle or not so subtle assertion that those on the receiving end of injustice are allowed to substitute love thy enemy for the exclusive love of thy culture. To substitute self-sacrifice for self-justification. To substitute personal transformation for identity idolatry. Where the oppressor must examine themselves, repent, and make amends, but the oppressed are exempt from the standards of love, righteousness, and obedience to God. Under this false conception, all God asks of the oppressed is that we live our truth and love those with whom we empathize. That might be a convenient narrative for our tribe, but it's reductionist and it's not biblical. God demands something from all of us. And let me tell you why that's a good thing. If we study the Exodus narrative closely, we find that God is indeed a liberator. 
that he despises oppression, that he identifies with the oppressed and he ultimately punishes the oppressor. But he doesn't devalue the oppressed by rendering them incapable of righteousness. He doesn't liberate the Hebrews and then tell them to go live their truth without giving them a a much greater purpose. You see, he frees them and gives them the law. He frees them and makes clear that he has expectations of them. He frees them and like a father, chastises them as a means of preparing them for the promised land. You see, he's pushing them up the road of redemptive history and toward their full potential. In doing so, he's saying that you're my children and you're made in my image and I have high expectations of you. You're not defined by your circumstances. You're defined by the Imago Dei. He's speaking to their capacity. He's speaking to the innate agency of his children. The ability of those with the power of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit to impact their circumstances against all odds. We understand that a child enduring the indignities of poverty is under a greater temptation to take desperate measures. We get that. Love and grace demand that we acknowledge that struggle and that we do everything in our power to change that predicament. At the same time, the black Christian tradition isn't to say that society is racist, therefore do you. No, it's a Christian ethic that recognizes racism, yet compels one to hold themselves to a dignified standard. To be released from standards and obligations is to be robbed of dignity, to be robbed of agency. Agency is the idea that your decisions matter. Don't let anyone tell you that your decisions don't matter. God says your decisions matter, and that's powerful. The so-called ally who protects you from discovering your own faults is actually disempowering you, not empowering you. They're most likely exercising the bigotry of low expectations and arresting your development. We must reject the idea that racism is either a non-factor or that it's somehow omnipotent, leaving us in a state of complete helplessness and hopelessness. Listen, racism is real and it's destructive, but your decisions matter. And that ethic is why, during the most trying of circumstances, black Christians kept their heads up and fought for justice. Those were decisions that kept us hopeful and spiritually alive. We do serve a God who's a liberator, but he doesn't liberate us to be our untransformed selves. He liberates us to worship him and seek his righteousness in our personal lives and in the civic space. There's no caveat or exception that allows the victim of racism to hate the perpetrator of racism or to embrace the myth that all white people are the same and they don't suffer. That helps no one. The Bible says we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But it's sad to say today that many Christians aren't even willing to risk their reputations, not willing to lose friends, not willing to miss a check to stand against racism. Yet despite everything, despite the whole history and everything that we've been through, because I believe in the promises of an almighty God, I stand before you with a heart that believes that reconciliation is possible. And you know why? It's because we have the same great commission. 
the same great commandment, and we've all been ordered to do justice and walk humbly with our God. We have all the common ground we need in the gospel to defeat this great evil. But we must first acknowledge America's history of racial injustice and its vestiges that are still very real and impactful today. If we're going to move forward in a constructive manner, we have to enter conversations about race, not in a posture of self-defense, but in a posture of self-examination. Not looking to make sure that our narratives are intact, but making sure that we're seeking the truth. Because when folks went up to Jesus, not many of them left with their narratives intact. We have to go into these conversations not saying, I didn't do anything, but saying, what can I do? And that will glorify God. Thank you. Amen, amen. Isn't God good? Uh, we can go home now, right? No. Um, at this time, we're going to have a panel, and I'm going to bring those panelists up now as they're... We're going we're gonna to have a dinner table conversation with one another on what uh, Justin just spoke to us about. Um, folks that are coming up are from many different backgrounds, and they're going to share their story, their narrative, but also how, what does it look like to cross lines uh, and do life with those that are different than us? as well, especially navigating this political arena. Well, what, the way I would love to start out with, I want them to just kind of share a little bit about themselves. Um, again, and we're talking about politics and race, but how does the gospel speak to this? But right now, um, as you can see, everybody looks a little different on the stage too, and we come from different backgrounds. So um, just share your name, where you're from. Um, you got to hear from Justin, but just talk about um, how that, you know, your politics, maybe even the way you navigate that was, sh was shaped and by your parents or where you come from? Okay. Um, so yeah, I definitely think I was shaped by my upbringing. So I'm originally from uh, Denver, Colorado. And so I got to, I was raised in a very diverse group of people, group of friends and teammates and all that stuff. And so, you know, I went through the hard things, you know, getting called the N-word at school, all those issues, which shaped my understanding of the need uh, to, to address race issues in a real way and not to be colorblind just because it's hard yeah. or inconvenient uh, for us. But at the same time, I was able to have close friends and see the pain of people who were in the majority culture, the pain of people in other cultures. Yeah. And so I could never deny the fact that people suffer. Yeah. Uh, because while I, I, I talk a lot about race, I also say, understand that class plays a, a large part in these conversations yeah. too. And because we want to keep these perfect narratives, a lot of people who talk about race don't want to talk about class. Wow. Because it means that they would have to include people who don't look like them, and, and it complicates the narrative. Uh, but it's the truth, and the truth again demands some nuance. Um, and then, at, you know, at the same time, just being the, the grandson of a, a civil rights era preacher, understanding the civil rights era, the sacrifices they made, and why it was important. I just, I just thank God for a, a real diverse. Um, experience the ability to talk to different people coming from kind of a blue collar family. It was a family that was um, mostly in the Democratic Party, been in that party all my life. But I think what really changed is understanding how faith and, and how race, but also more so faith plays into the conversation of my politics. 
Uh, my name is Dan Hansons. I'm from a small town called Midland, Michigan. Um, Midland is 92% white and less than 2% black. Um, went to Hope College, which is also very white. And so really before coming to Renewal, um, I was really just in a vast majority white space. Um, both of my parents were Marines. Um, they discharged before we moved to Michigan. And I think for them that swayed them very politically Republican in a lot of ways. Um, and when I think about how race impacted kind of how I grew up, I mean, I think I kind of had this viewpoint that we had moved past racism, right? That the civil rights era kind of took care of that. Martin Luther King kind of paid a real big sacrifice to get us there. And that any issues we had going forward really needed to not include race. And so for me, I remember when Rodney King happened. Um, if you guys aren't familiar with that, it's probably one of the first times we had video evidence of white police officers um, beating a black man. And I remember the mentality of my household and really in my community was much more around like, this is a one isolated incident. We don't need to bring race into this. And we just kind of need to look at what's happening for these people and these are kind of the facts. And so I think that really kind of embodies kind of how, what my situation was. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Robinson Alexis. Uh, I am uh, originally from Haiti, um, but spent, um, but grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, I came to America around the age of seven, but when I arrived here, uh, my parents sent for me in Haiti, and I was undocumented. And so, growing up, at least in my household, we didn't necessarily really talk about a lot of politics. I mean, mom just worked, and it is what it is. But I would say, looking back, just knowing um, my parents' views on certain issues, I would say they probably would identify mostly as conservative. Uh, but I would say for me, in terms of the environment that I grew up in, I probably would identify more as a Democrat. But I would say as I got older, left my environment and start to interact with people that look different than me. For example, I lived in uh, um, uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And someone who's dear to my heart, my mentor, he, a uh, white man from uh, Nashville who really, inf did I say it right? Nashville, okay. <laughs> uh, who really influenced me in a lot of ways. And it was the first time in my life I actually interacted with somebody who I thought strongly had different political views than me. Yeah. But it was all right because I learned to build a relationship with somebody that wasn't based on their political views, so. Good morning. I'm Deb. Uh, my kids and I are members here at Renewal. Um, I grew up uh, till I was 10 in Ohio and from then on in the Chicago suburbs. Um, my parents uh, adopted my brothers who are also black in uh, the 1970s. And so I grew up in a home where race has kind of always been on the table and something that we've talked about. Um, but throughout that time period, um, at least until I was an adult, um, my parents were split party voters. So my mom voted one way, my dad voted the other. That was not a point of contention in our house. It was more just like, oh look, they're going to cancel their vote, each other's votes out again. And, and so it was what it was, but I grew up in a home where I heard um, about both parties and both sides um, and understood, you know, kind of the pers their perspectives uh, that that brings. But I don't think that when I was um, a kid, pre-college I would probably say, and maybe beyond that, I didn't connect or associate 
race with what I thought about politics. I had opinions about race and it mattered to me very much, very deeply because of my own um, family. Um, but I didn't connect it to politics until later. And now I think parenting children who are black um, as well as kind of throughout the development um, that I've gone through in my life, I, I understand and I see the connection more. Um, and uh, just a footnote on that as well. Uh, my dad has since switched parties, so they no longer cancel each other out. But um, <laughs> it is something that we didn't, I also like these guys didn't grow up in a home that was extremely political. Um, but I did grow up both in a church as well as a family community that um, was Anabaptist in its roots, which is a very highly social justice oriented um, denomination that really cares about social justice. So these issues have been on the table for me for a long time. That's good. Thank you guys for sharing that. Deb, we had a conversation beforehand, and, and I, I said this is the first service, but we don't usually have a, the conversation about what everybody's going to say on this stage, so you can have more of a conversation on this stage. But we were meeting beforehand, and I, I have a question about a narr your narrative, and um, she asked a clarifying question because I wanted to know how your narrative uh, impacts how you walk through or engage politics or the civic arena, social justice, period. And for me, narrative, I automatically think about the fact that I'm a black man. And so my, my, my blackness, me being a black man, impacts and, and dictates my narrative in terms of how I walk through society. But for her, she didn't think necessarily about her race, and which was intriguing to me, which I want to walk into this question. I'm going to start with you, Deb, in terms of that. Bring it, bring it, thinking about your narrative and your background, how does that even, how does that impact how you walk into um, politics, the political arena, um, how do you engage it? And also, like, how do you feel right now with the present-day politics? And again, that's not about President Trump or anything, but just present-day politics, period. How do you feel in this dynamic? Yeah, so the first part first, I think what, what I realized when I said to Derek, you know, um, the questions you sent me, they didn't say anything about race. I mean, I think if he's honest, that's actually the question that I sent to him. <laughs> And guess what, guys? That is coming from a position of white privilege. Um, that's me not understanding that the experiences that I live in this country are necessarily tainted by and through the lens of somebody who has experienced great privilege throughout my life. Now, let's, let's level set real quick on what white privilege means. White privilege does not mean that white people don't have hard things happen to them. That is not what it means. I've had plenty of issues in my own life. Many of you who are white here have experienced things that are incredibly hard. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a system that privileges white people. Um, a system in this country that really was, uh, was grown and developed on that. And so to get to the second half of Derek's question, when you ask me how I feel today about where we are with politics, again, President Trump completely aside, I feel sad. Um, I think we are in such a place in this country where everybody's kind of going to their corners. The left is going way left. The right is going way right. We can't hear one another. There's no space in the middle for what, what I believe Justin just, just taught us about, understanding what the gospel says. And that grieves me deeply um, because we, and I include myself at the top of this list, we have stopped hearing one another. Mm. And that's a very dangerous wow. place for us as a country. Yeah. Wow. Um, I think for me to answer this question, um, I can better illustrate it in the story. So recently, unfortunately, my grandmother passed this past December. Now, mind you, I told you guys that um, I was born in another country. 
um, undocumented immigrant. And so I did not um, have proper documentation until I was about the age of 18. Now, for whatever reason, because I'm a klutz, I, I lost my passport, right? <laughs> so I'm losing my passport. I'm like, okay, it's going to be a simple test. Let me just go ahead and get the passport. I'm about to take off to Haiti. And uh, uh, I, I got to tell you, for me, because of the current climate, if I'm realistic about the process I went to just to get a passport, I was actually terrified. Um, mm. Simply um, because, one, you know, you hear the, uh, um, you know, conversation that's out there, how bold people are on certain views. It, uh, it, those are things that kind of like goes in the back of your mind. But the other thing too is just seeing some of the things that are happening um, around the border as it relates to immigration and policy. And it was something that, uh, that really made me fearful to even go back to Haiti to bury my grandmother. Um, I, I, uh, one of the requirements to, you know, to, to renew your passport is, uh, is uh, uh, a U.S. passport is having a U.S. birth certificate. That makes sense, but I don't have one of those. You know what I mean? <laughs> the only other document I can have is show a, a U.S. passport. Well, I just lost that. So, <laughs> so it was just, um, I can honestly tell you one of the most stressful time I've ever had. I recall just actually going uh, to the building just so I can like, you know, just to hand a picture and whatever it may be. And I was terrified. So for whatever that, uh, for whatever reason that may be, and it may seem like a, irrational uh, uh, feeling, but when you growing up, uh, growing up just seeing people that you know get deported <laughs> on a regular basis, you guys may not know anybody that way, but that's been my life, so I think it really, for whatever reason, just uh, a sense of fear mm. I think would be my answer. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so it's interesting when you talk about like, how do I feel my race impacts my politics, and I think my initial response is that it doesn't. Um, and I think to unpack that a little bit, it, white people are the majority in America. There are more white people than all other races combined, which means to be elected, you need people like me to vote for you. You don't necessarily need people like Robinson to vote for you, which means that when people are talking about issues, they're talking about issues that I care about, right? And if I'm going to be honest, I had a, a, a wrong and sinful view of this in a lot of ways, being that like... The other issues, like race and immigration, that those weren't the real issues. Those were kind of secondary. And the, the main issues that the politicians spent time, those were the primary issues. And so, you know, of course, you know, the black politicians will talk about race issues and the Latino politicians may talk about immigration. Um, but the primary issues that were needed or that were really there, the real issues, were the ones that impacted the majority culture. Um, and I think a lot of that is based on my narrative, right? Um, and I think one of the things that I think Justin said really well is like there needs to be some self-sacrifice involved because I'm not someone who necessarily has a whole lot of natural empathy. Um, when I think about issues such as immigration, right, I kind of, it's easy for me just to like picture a group of people I don't really know and um, may not care as much about. And I think one of the things that's been a blessing for me at Renewal is I can have conversations, um, really hard conversations with people like Robinson who have a much different narrative um, and so now when we talk about immigration, I don't think about, you know, random people. I'm like, man, this is Robinson, right? This is someone that I've had conversations with, someone I love, someone I care about, people in my small group, that kind of thing. And so 
Am I willing to change some of the things that may be less good for me, but much, much better for other people who I know and love? And I think that's kind of how I've come in a lot of ways uh, to have race impact my politics. Mm. Yeah, I would say one of the toughest things for me in politics today is the way that Christians have allowed our political affiliation to become religious in nature, Mm. right? Where we tie our identity to our political affiliation, Mm -hmm. Um, which is, which is, very harmful because the way that our political landscape is set up, it's hard to apply the whole counsel of God depending on what your side you're in, yeah. right? So if you're on the right, it's almost like you have to surrender or sacrifice your compassion to some right. extent, right? Because you got to be rugged individualist and you got to, you know, uh, and then you're, if you're on the left, you have to pretty much surrender some of your convictions, right? There are certain convictions that you're not supposed to have if you care about justice, and it's just not true. Because when you look at Jesus, Jesus was about justice and moral order. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is, if you don't have justice, then you don't have moral order. Right. Right? And, and the other way around, there's no moral order if there's no justice, no justice if there's moral order. But when Christians go, and, and I, I think there's, for practical reasons, a reason to be in political parties, right? But at the same time, when you allow your political parties to frame your issues for you, then they're really deciding what your values are. I can almost guarantee you that if, if each person in this room who's partisan stepped back and looked at how their views changed over time, it most likely changed with your party. Because once you attach your identity to that, they control, they say, oh, well, we think this now, and we have to think this because they're so bad. And that's all they have to say, and then you change with it. So I really just want Christians to start framing the issues for themselves. Doesn't mean you can't be in a party, but frame the issues based on uh, biblical doctrine. So, with that all said, and your narrative politics or what we think about it and how we feel, um, I want you guys to kind of slip on another person's boots on the other side of the street, if you want to say, the other side of the tracks. And if you're slipping on their sides of the, the, their boots, you think about the gospel, and as Justin said, and I said earlier, Jesus, the gospel, and the fact that when Jesus died, is both vertical reconciliation, us with us and God, but also horizontal to one another. But the horizontal relationship or that reconciliation across those lines is tough in America specifically, especially along the lines of politics. So if you were to slip on the other person's boots, it's not necessarily like you, doesn't necessarily feel um, the way you do or it's different. Um, You wouldn't maybe even engage them. How how do you engage that person? How has that looked like in your life? Um, How do you have that conversation? Uh, What's that look like for you personally? I just took the microphone uh, from Robinson because I got to say this before I get too scared. Um, And I'm being sincere about that. Um, Sometimes when Derek preaches, he says, I'm about to come up in your driveway. So I'm going to steal his phrase. (laughs) I'm about to come up in your driveway. Um, Justin just said a great lead into what I'm about to say. And that is that none of us fit well within either party if we really sincerely check our beliefs. And so I wanna start there and then share a couple of ways that I have been challenged by my black and brown brothers and sisters to see something differently than I would have seen from my own narrative. So the first example I'm gonna drive up on is those of you who um, were fans of President Clinton. Um, In 1994, he signed a crime bill act um, into law, which among other things had a three strikes policy. 
It identified a difference between crack and cocaine that disparately impacted um, poor black and brown communities and resulted in the imprisonment, a extremely high, in my view, um, imprisonment of black and brown people. Um, so let's take a step back. What's my narrative? I'm a lawyer. I started my career as a federal prosecutor. I think people going to jail is a good thing, right? If they've done something wrong, they should go to jail and they should go for long. But here's what I learned in that process. Um, and here's what I learned by listening and putting on the, the shoes of somebody else and hearing them is some of the damage that was done by that bill over time in our black and brown community. And what I see today is, and you know, in the last couple of years, President Trump signed a historic crime bill that's going to start to address some of those disparities. And I think I viewed that as a good thing. Okay. So now I'm up on a different driveway. Um, and this is the hard one. So if you're mad at me, you can email me later, debs3 at gmail.com. We can have a conversation and I promise to listen to you. Okay. So when then candidate Trump um, started running for office, he picked the slogan, make, a, make America great again. And in my narrative, I saw make America great again, and I thought, okay, President Trump didn't like the eight years under President Obama, and so he wants to fix it. He's gonna make America great again. Okay. What I've since heard from talking to my black and brown brothers and sisters is that the slogan, make America great again, can have a different impact on someone who has a different narrative than me. Mm. Are we gonna make America great back when we pushed all of Native Americans off their land, when, we, when pilgrims first came here? Mm. Are we gonna make it great for the couple hundreds of years that we had people in slavery? Was Jim Crow great? When, when were we great? And so, guys, I didn't experience that. Again, I'm, I'm the white privileged status in this country. But I think that, and listen, do I think that um, the Trump campaign had this all in their mind when they set this out? Probably not. But what I'm, what I'm suggesting to all of this, and most importantly to myself, is that we start to listen to one another regarding politics and understand how the things that are said or done may impact someone who looks differently from you. Yeah. Someone who has that different narrative, it means something different. And that does matter when we go right back to what Justin said, which is, isn't this supposed to be about God's love and justice and mercy and grace and the gospel? That's where we're supposed to be centered. Amen. Uh, yeah, so thanks, Deb. I could listen to Deb talk all day, to be honest with you. It's a blessing. So, yeah, I, I won't. I'll text you. I got your number. Um, um, so I think for me, when we talk about like how to engage um, someone else who has different views than you, um, I think the thing that I always try to challenge myself is when someone else is talking, am I listening or am I waiting to talk? Right, because if you're just sitting there waiting to talk, you really aren't trying to figure out where they're coming from. So uh -huh. I tend to believe that narrative has shaped our beliefs, right? I think that's one of the big things that why we shared our narratives and why we're coming up here. And so if someone disagrees with me on something, like a big topic or a political issue, 
I want to know what the real reason is. What in their experience, where is their heart really coming from? Because I don't believe that it's coming, for the most part, coming from a place of greed or maliciousness or anger. It's coming from something real that I can probably identify with. That doesn't mean I'm going to disagree, that I'll agree with it. But finding where their true heart is and why we actually have different views on this, I feel is an important thing. Mm, That's good. um, the question you pose, uh, Pastor Derek, in regards to, you know, actually putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. For the longest time, at least, you know, everybody likes to think they're reasonable, right? Like, normally when I talk to people, I hear their perspective, their view. Rather, I agree with them or not. I'm like, hey, that's on you. I view it differently. But I would say the past, I would say, few years, it's been more of a challenge for me to just be like, oh, okay, I get it. That's your view. That's your perspective. Because I think, like you say, for my narrative... Um, where you may think of certain legislations, um, how a bill can, you know, rather be taxes or whatever. But when I think of immigration, that's what I, uh, or an immigrant, that's who I am. That's what I identify with. So I think it's been really hard for me to have the discussion with um, some of my brothers and sisters because at times it becomes more emotional for me because I feel like I'm being attacked. Um, Mm -hmm. And... And I and and I know that may not be the view, but even when I go to uh, go deeper into the question, why? Or there's not a consistency in terms of at least from for most people I I have discussion with, because I feel I get one or two things. Well, mainly one thing, you know, Supreme Court, whatever. You know, that's all I basically hear. And and then if these are people that I call my brothers and sisters in Christ. And you see all these different things that are going on. Um, sometimes, I guess, what the challenge is for me to see it in somebody else's shoes, how can you be, or at least, I, can't, I, I shouldn't say, how can you be so blind? But why doesn't all the other stuff matter as well? And that's kind of like where I've been struggling with in terms of some of the conversation I've been having with people. That's good. That's good. Um, with that said, what's one last thing? What's one word if I can get you all to say just to... to um, to encourage people in terms of navigating those lines and just crossing that line with someone else as you've shared about your own person. What's one thing, um, Justin spoke about how the gospel compels us to do so, but what's one thing that you could encourage our folks with um, how to cross those lines? Yeah, so I think, so I've been at this church for about three years, and my guess is that for most people here, um, they're here because they've already started processing through some of those, some of these issues around race. It's something we want to engage in. Um, and I've been amazingly blessed to have a lot of different people share their narrative with me at emotional cost to them. And I think that's something real. Um, I think where I'm starting to struggle is like their narrative has become a part of my narrative. Renewal has become a my, part of my narrative. Mm. It's a lot more difficult for me now to go back across the line and talk to other people who don't have some place like renewal, mm. right? And I think... Renewal is a gift. This is a unique place, right? To look out here and see people from such diversity, such diverse backgrounds, like that's not normal. And most people don't have, most people in Chicago don't have that, let alone small town Michigan. So I can't expect them, people from my hometown, people that I love, my family, to change their opinions based on what I've experienced, right? So I now have to find a way to, you know, share Robinson's story with people that I love who don't have this opportunity. And that for me is much harder because I give a lot less grace to other white people who don't have 
people of color in their lives. And so I think that's where I'm personally looking for grace. And I think that's one of those things I'm still learning to get, navigate, but it's something that I feel I shouldn't, right? That I really do. So. That's good. That's good. Any last words? Yeah, I would just say one of the biggest issues in our, in our politics today is just that we can't find common ground, right? Um, you can't have a conversation with somebody if you don't have common ground because there's just nothing to, to kind of refer to. That shouldn't be a problem for Christians, right? Mm -hmm. We have the same great commandment, same great commission. We're all supposed to be, do justice and walk humbly. We have all the common ground that we need to fix Amen. this issue. And the beauty of it is there are Christians on both sides of the aisle. So if the healing's really going to happen, it can start with us yeah. if we really change how we look at politics. So it's a huge opportunity. The divide is there, but I think God and the way that he works created that divide so we could be the ones to mend it. Amen. 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 That's a good word. Well, why don't you guys put your hands together for the panel. I want to pray for us as we enter a time of communion, um, but one thing I want you to think and remember as we come to the table this morning and take communion is the gospel is big enough, as Justin just said, for everyone. Um, I, I love to think of heaven and the fact that when we get there, it's going to be every tongue, tribe, and nation together worshiping the same God together. That means we, I, I like to dream of singing Mandarin Chinese songs and 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 songs in Spanish and, and get, put some Fred Hammond on there with the, the Hammond B3 organ. I mean, all of these different things. And, 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 and Chris Tomlin, too. I'm a, I got to throw him in there, too, you know. <laughs> we'll have all that in heaven. heaven. And, and my dream, especially with renewal, is to just have a little bit of that heaven here on earth. Um, but with the society and America that we live in, it takes a lot of intentionality. So I want to challenge you all to be intentional with um, folks that are in your, your sphere um, or even around you with your jobs too. But as we come to the table this morning, I want you to really think about and remember the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember his death, burial, and his resurrection because that symbolizes not only his power over sin and death, but when he died, he made way for all people like you and me, colors, shapes, sizes, all different backgrounds to come and be in fellowship with God. And not only there, but with one another. And so what happens here in renewal doesn't necessarily have to be an anomaly. It shouldn't be for Christians, as he just said. Well, this is what we should be doing. This is what we are called to do, and it's to cross those lines with one another. So as we come share this meal, I just want you to take it all in and look around as you come to the table um, to share a meal with your brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. You're a good God. You're an awesome God. I'm thankful that you can bring people together from many different walks of life. God, I just pray that as we come to the table this morning that we would never forget your sacrifice, your death on the cross. Well, God, we're thankful that you didn't stay in that grave and that you rose three days later with power in your hands, God. Power over sin and death. And God, you've given us the same spirit, the Holy Spirit within us to be able to walk and navigate hard conversations and have those dinner table conversations, if you will, with people that are not like us. Because you first did it for us, Jesus. So let us remember you as we come to the table this morning. May you be lifted up in this church and in our lives. 
forever be glorified. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we all sat together. Amen. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I pray that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 930 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.